In his book entitled uh, The Cure for the Common Life, uh, Max Lucado talks about when he was a boy and two families in his neighborhood both were going away on a vacation at the same time during the summer. He said, both needed a kid to watch their house, both called me. I was 13, unemployed and broke, so I took the jobs. I fed their pets, both had dogs, mowed their grass, both had lawns, picked up their daily mail and newspapers, both had both, he says. The jobs were, with one exception, identical. But that one exception proved crucial. One job scared me, the other thrilled me. I dreaded my time at the Wilson House, but relished my time at the Johnson House. The reason for the difference? I didn't know Mr. Wilson. All I knew was what I saw, a tall fence armed with pointed poles, a growling square-faced bulldog, and a thin-tailed Cadillac, the kind mobsters drive in the movies. <laughs> High fence, mean dog, mobster car, mess up his lawn and prepare to swim in cement, I thought. I loathed the Wilson work. But I loved my job at the Johnson home. They too had a fence and a dog, but it was much nicer and the dog was much nicer. He drove a truck, a truck often spotted at my house. He knew our family, I knew him, I knew his laugh, his wife, his favorite quarterback. And since I knew the man, I enjoyed the work. Lucado goes on to conclude, how you relate to the master of the house colors everything. Dread him and hate your work, trust him and love it. Today we are continuing in our series called Living Ready for the Return of Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you ready for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Amen. And boy, we live in a time, family, where it seems like, you know, we're talking about, oh, his return has got to be soon. It's got to be any moment now. And we've talked a little bit last few weeks how there's many times in our lives and in the lives of people long before us where those same kinds of thoughts and conversations happened. I do hope the Lord's coming is soon, but how soon is soon? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus says, rather than worry about when my coming will be, because he says you don't know the day or the hour, I want you to concern yourself with being watchful, being ready as you wait. And so that's what we have been doing the last few weeks, looking at these parables that Jesus tells right on the heels of all his talk in Matthew chapter 24 about, you know, uh, the fact that we're not going to know the day or the hour and gives a little bit of an idea of what it would be like in those last days. He says, this is how I want you to be watchful and get ready with these stories. And so we find Jesus teaching another parable that gives another dimension to what it means to watch and be ready for his return. Let's get into the text, Matthew chapter uh, 25, starting in verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. They went, then he went on his journey, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the other with 
two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the other one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and thrown and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. So the parable, maybe it's well known to you. It's one that I, I think we learned sometimes when we were younger. The parable says that the master has these bags of gold, or maybe as you're used to hearing it, talents that he gives out. And he gives five to one servant, two to another, and one to the last one. To the one he gives five, and two, um, they uh, are ones that respond well. The ones who he gives one does not. Now, a talent back then is not a talent as we use the word now. In that day, a, time, a, a talent in that time was simply a, a unit of exchange, a weight measurement. So as the NIV rendered it, it's a, a bag of gold. They're trying to help us understand this is what it was. Sometimes they, they weighted a bag of gold or a bag of silver, but, but a talent was a unit of measurement. And in fact, a talent represented the largest unit of accounting in the Greek currency, 10,000 denarii to be exact. Now, you may remember from the parable of the workers just a few chapters ago in Matthew chapter 20, a denarius represented a day's fair wages. So multiply your daily wage by 10,000 and you discover the approximate value of one talent. To place this in terms that we maybe better understand today, if you earn about $30,000 a year and if you factor in weekends and holidays, so maybe you say you work about 260 days out of the year, that would be about $115 a day. A talent, in the case of that person who earns $30,000 a year, would be valued at 10,000 times 115, which would be $1,150,000. To place this in further perspective, suppose a person earns $30,000 a year and works for 40 years. Their lifetime's earnings would be $1,200,000, just $50,000 more than the one talent. 
One talent then equals a lifetime of earnings. To me, this says that this parable really isn't just about money or some things that we are talented at doing. I think it's illustrating what someone's whole life has to offer. And this life with all its resources and talents and gifts are from the master. The parable reminds us that who we are and what we have are gifts from God. And all three gifts, all three of them, are worth a whole lot in the parable. This is not the main point of the message today, family, but I just can't help but pause and say who you are and what you have has a high market value to heaven. A friend of mine was telling me the other day of how his four-year-old asked while they were driving in the car, Daddy, where do babies come from? He was a little nervous and unsure and unprepared about how to answer that question that moment. And with the maturity level of his son, he thought, well, maybe I'll just uh, say, they come from mommy's tummy. And then without skipping a beat, the, the kid says, well, how do they get in mommy's tummy? <laughs> oh, well, mom was also in the car and in her greater wisdom stepped in and she said, well, honey, how do you think they get into mommy's tummy? And again, without missing a beat, the little boy said, God puts them there. Now, even though he doesn't fully understand yet how the babies get in mommy's tummy, I think he understands the truth of the matter, don't you? That children are a gift from God. And any parent knows when you, when you hold that baby for the first time, and the second, and the third, however many times, you know it is just the most precious, valuable gift from God. Don't forget your life, your resources, your abilities are gifts from God, and that you have a high market value in heaven. So high, in fact, that Jesus believed your life was worth the price of his own had to just pause and remind you of that. Then the parable describes how the servant who received five talents and the servant who receives two talents go out at once. They waste no time and they put those gifts they've received into, into action. They invest them. They, work, they, they put them to work. And after a long time, the master returns and the one gifted five talents gains five more. The one gifted two talents gains two more. The master tells him, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of a lot of things and I want to welcome you into my joy. The first two servants do well and are commended because they have used their gifts to increase the master's holding thus being ready when the master returns. So I guess we have to say the lesson for us is watching, living ready means using our gifts, our talents, our resources, our, our very lives in order to increase the kingdom of God. I like the way Pastor Randy Roberts, maybe some of you have heard of him, uh, describes what this can practically look like in our lives, in his book, Waiting and Longing, which is a good book, by the way. He says this, first of all, we should take this literally to what it meant to the hearers in Jesus' time, when a talent symbolized money. 
So one of the first ways to watch is using your money in ways that further the goals of the kingdom of God, like Cindy, you mentioned in our offering call. Have you ever realized that when the offering plate comes down your row at church and you drop in your tithe and your offerings that you are not just giving to the church? No, you are watching, watching for the coming of Christ. Have you ever realized that when the hat is passed for a needy family and you help bear the burden, you are not just giving something to help the needy. No, you are watching for his coming. But we also must appropriately broaden the meaning of the talent to include not only money, but also include the responsibilities, gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given to each one of us. And when we do that, we realize that every day of our lives can be characterized by watching. When outstanding musicians like this morning led worshipers in majestic praise, when the choir and orchestra use what they have been given to lift hearts of God's people heavenward, it is tempting to say, thank you for using your talents, and that is fine as far as it goes. But please understand that on a much deeper level, as they increase the kingdom of God, they are watching, watching for the coming. When children learn of the truths of the kingdom in children's programs and Sabbath school classes, they are the beneficiaries of people who are using their talents to increase the kingdom in their little lives. And so we say, thank you for using your talents. Beyond that, don't miss the fact that these leaders are not just serving the children. No, they are also watching, watching for the coming king. Drama groups who help to illustrate the truths of the kingdom are not just entertainment. They are using their talents to increase an understanding of the kingdom. That is also washing. When physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals use their gifts, they have been given to alleviate suffering. We are thankful when health is restored. We thank them for a job well done. We are grateful that they are working in the tradition of the great physician to address the physical needs of people. But we must also remember they are watching get the picture and we could say we could name so many others who are faithfully using their talents in ways that enlarge the kingdom of God everywhere you look every day of your life when you see faithful servants of Christ using their talents to increase the kingdom thank them appreciate them be grateful to them and then realize that they are only doing what we all must do if we are to live in readiness of Christ's return absolutely Watching means using our gifts to increase the kingdom of God. That's definitely a lesson of this parable. But I don't think it's the main lesson. It can't be because of what happens with the third servant. The third servant doesn't use his talent to increase the kingdom of God. In fact, he doesn't use it at all. He buries it. And the tragic result is that his talent is taken from him, given to another, and he is cast out into darkness and despair. Why would he do this? Why did he bury such a valuable gift? Why didn't he try to increase the master's holdings? It's because he didn't realize the kind of master he was working for. Did you catch his reason? In verse 24, I don't have it on the screen, but I'll read it to you again. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. 
the servant levied a very cruel judgment by calling the master a hard man. His word that he uses here for hard is the exact same word that Jesus uses a few chapters earlier in Matthew 19 when he calls the Pharisees stiff-necked and stubborn. Same word. Now, the master just gave multi-million dollar gifts to undeserving servants. He honored the two-talent worker just as much as the five-talent worker. He stood face to face with both at the homecoming and announced before the audiences of heaven, well done, my good and faithful servants. On the contrary, the master has shown himself to be exceedingly good and abundantly gracious. Even though the master doesn't sugarcoat his response, he says, gives it to him straight, wicked and lazy servant. Did you notice that he also repeats the assessment of the servant word for word, but with one exclusion? He leaves out the, I knew you were a hard man part. I think the servant's sin wasn't mismanagement. It was misunderstanding. And a fearful outlook of the master leads to a fearful outcome. As important as it is for me to tell you this morning, hey, use, use what God has given you, your lives, your resources, your talents to, to increase the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's, it's great. Increase the kingdom. But if we don't have the right picture of the king, it's not going to matter if I tell you that. Unless we get that right, we won't do the next part right. In his book called The God-Shaped Brain, maybe some of you have read it, psychiatrist Tim Jennings details how our view of God influences us so much. I want to read you a few excerpts from his book. This first one I think is really good. He captures in, in such a, a beautiful way the core reality of God. He says, the core, central, primary characteristic of God is love. Not the silly, finite, flimsy, emotional, wax, fruit, imposter we sometimes call love, but a boundless, eternal, bottomless, never-ending reality of goodness on which the cosmos is built. A love that lasts, that creates, that is constant. God is love. The Bible does not say God is forgiveness, even though he is forgiving. Or that God is knowledge, even though he is all-knowing. Or that God is power, even though he is all-powerful. All other attributes are like facets on a diamond, radiant windows into the heart of God. But with regard to love, God does not merely act it out. He embodies it. Isn't that well said? And then Jennings go on, goes on to say in another section, he says, Does it matter which God concept we hold to? Recent brain research by Dr. Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania has documented that all forms of contemplative meditation were associated with positive brain changes. But the greatest improvements occurred when participants meditated specifically on a God of love. Such meditation was associated with growth in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain right behind our forehead where we reason, make judgments, and experience God-like love and subsequent increased capacity for empathy, sympathy, compassion, and altruism. But here's the most astonishing part. 
Not only does other-centered love increase when we worship a God of love, but sharp thinking and memory improve as well. In other words, worshiping a God of love actually stimulates the brain to heal and grow. However, when we worship a God other than love, a being who is punitive, authoritarian, critical, or distant, fear circuits are activated, and if not calmed, will result in chronic inflammation and damage to both brain and body. As we bow before authoritarian gods, our characters are slowly changed to be less like Jesus. Truly, by beholding, he concludes, we are changed, not only in character, but our neural circuitry as well. As I was reading Jennings' comments, I couldn't help but have some of those beautiful verses from Psalms 103 ringing in my mind. Verses like, the Lord is compassionate and generous, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Ah, if the servant only would have remembered that that is the kind of master he was working for, he would have been ready. Laura was also someone who struggled with having that kind of view of the master. She was a patient of Dr. Jennings, and he talks a bit about her journey in his book. I want to share that with you now. Laura had a history of depression and anxiety, Jennings said. She worried about everything, how people would treat her, whether she would have enough money to pay her bills, whether she could keep her job, whether her friends really liked her. She had chronic fear of abandonment and intense feelings of loneliness. But... She was most terrified of losing people she cared about. So she never let herself get too close. Laura had been treated with a variety of medications and all without significant improvement. I could sense that there was an undercurrent of anger brewing beneath the surface of her fear and discouragement. When I asked her if she believed in God, she responded with a look of rage mixed with hurt and pain. Don't you dare talk to me about God, she said adding that while she, was, while she doubted his existence, she was very angry with him. Laura told me that for her entire life, she felt persecuted, punished, beaten up by God. Whenever something happened in her life, she would see God doing it to her. She said she didn't believe in God, yet she hated and feared him. As we explored her life story, she told me that when she was seven years old, her mother had been killed in an automobile accident. She cried hard as she recounted this painful experience to me. Then she told me at the funeral, uh, then she told me of the funeral, of sitting on the front pew of the church as the preacher looked straight at her and said, God took your mommy to be with him. Turning toward me with anger burning in her eyes, she said, but I needed my mommy with me. What kind of God was presented to Laura when she was most vulnerable 
Jennings thought. Innocently, inadvertently, maybe, a lie about God was planted into her mind. That lie simply stated, God takes mommies from their children. God is the source of pain, suffering, and death. Laura's mind had become a stronghold for fear and doubt, believing lies about God. She'd become filled with bitterness, anger, and resentment, and love cannot flow where lies about God are lodged. I knew that in order to get well, in order to find peace, Laura must be freed from her oppressive view of God. So I asked her to tell me a little bit more about the God in whom she didn't believe. She spent several minutes describing a cruel tyrant, a being with arbitrarily, that arbitrarily abuses his power to inflict pain and suffering on his creatures, a being who must be appeased, a being who doesn't care that children are abused, one who takes mommies away from their children. After she finished, I looked directly into her eyes and said, good for you. I don't believe in him either. Shocked at such a reply from a Christian psychiatrist, she looked at me skeptically. So I went on to affirm her for rejecting such a hideous conception of God, commended her for refusing to surrender her thinking and blindly acquiescing to such abusive authority. And she began to soften. And over time, as she became more comfortable, as we spent more time together, we began to explore other possibilities about God, about why painful events happen, possibilities that slowly reduced her fear and sense of being persecuted and opened a way to healing. I think Max Lucado said it well. The way we relate to the master colors everything. It's no wonder then that Jesus would give us this parable, which teaches us that to be ready, to be watchful, involves remembering the kind of master that we're working for. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may we never forget that, that you are faithful and true, that you give us amazing grace, that you are God who is love. And Lord, may we always remember that so that we can take what you've gifted us and grow your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.